before we begin, would you pray with me? Father, we just heard read that your word that goes out from your mouth will not return to you empty, but will accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. God, we ask that you would make good on that promise this morning, that as we open your word together, that as we talk about Isaiah and John and hear about Jesus, Lord, that you would make your word effective in our lives, that whatever we come before you with this morning, that you would meet us in it, uh, whether we are in darkness and despair or full of joy, uh, Lord, we ask that you would be among us, that you would make your word living and active, uh, that by it you would encourage and challenge us. Lord, that your spirit would be working to sanctify us here this morning. Uh, We thank you for the privilege that it is to gather freely in your name uh, with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and we praise you for that this morning. We love you, and we thank you for this time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, uh, but I love this time of year. The Christmas season is uh, one of my favorite throughout the year, and uh, I start looking forward to it by about March, if I'm honest, and I feel the excitement and the longing for the decorations and the music and the happy family memories, and it's especially fun to relive the the joy and excitement of Christmas through little kids' eyes. I, I get so excited about everything that comes with this season. As you know, Thanksgiving was a little bit earlier this year, and, and that doesn't mean that uh, for my family that we had to wait um, an extra week to get our tree and do all the decorating. No, no, that meant that the tree, the, the living, live, real tree that we got, because that's the best kind of tree, if you're wondering, if you have an opinion on that, the correct one is that live trees are the best. Well, it didn't mean that our tree had to live another year in, or another week in the ground. It meant that that tree got to be invited into our home for an extra week as part of our Christmas family. The tree for us, uh, as for many of you, I'm sure, is, is like the centerpiece of our decorations in our home. But having a tree uh, with no presence under it means that for us and for you and for parents around the globe, we're asked one question on a regular basis, right? When will there be presence under the tree? You probably remember when you were a kid and the waiting and waiting and waiting for those long-anticipated presents to show up under the tree. Well, the Christian life is a lot like that, isn't it? It's a lot like waiting for those gifts to show up under the tree. Throughout history, God's people have been a waiting people. We are a people who wait From the promise that God made all the way back in the garden after that first sin, right? That there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. To Abraham waiting for his offspring. God promised him that and he had to wait all that time for his son to be born. And then to Moses and the Israelites waiting and wandering in the wilderness to get into the promised land. To David waiting for the one who God promised would sit on his throne To the people of God, waiting for their long-expected Savior, the coming Messiah. We, as Christians and throughout history, are a people who wait. Well, the thing about gifts uh, that show up under the tree and waiting for them is, is usually the anticipation of receiving that gift is actually better than getting the gift itself, isn't it? That's the sad truth about our discontent 
hearts. We, we have to have that shiny new thing and we dream about it and we research it and, and we picture how much better our lives are going to be after we have that thing that's waiting under the tree for us. And when we were kids, we got that brand new toy that we were so excited about. And then, you know, if we're lucky two or three weeks later, it, it lasted for those two or three weeks and then it ended up at the bottom of the toy box or in the back of the closet. And then as adults, uh, the excitement lasts for a little while and then it fades. And soon that item that we had to have that was going to fulfill us so much is in the garage sale bin or it's listed on Facebook Marketplace so we can fund the next great thing that will definitely satisfy us. Well, the thing about Jesus is he's not like that. He's the one thing that can actually satisfy that can actually fulfill, and that can actually bring about lasting change in your life. This morning, uh, I'm kicking off a three-week series in Advent called Advent Old and New, where we're going to take a look at each of the three Gospels that talk about the arrival of Jesus, uh, and then we're going to pair them with, their old, with some Old Testament counterparts. The word that defines this season, Advent, uh, simply means arrival, and so I thought it'd be fun to look at how uh, John and Matthew and Luke talk about the arrival of Jesus, and especially as they're connected to, their old, to some Old Testament texts, and, I, and as we do that, I want to consider uh, how this might impact our lives today. So you heard Lindsay read from Isaiah just a few minutes ago about the Word. Uh, and you may remember in John 1 that the Word shows up. Some of you are familiar with this text, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and on and on. Well, we're going to talk about that today. And then next week we'll look at Isaiah 7 and 8, but this time we're going to pair it with Matthew and what it means that Jesus is Emmanuel or God with us, and then we'll look at Isaiah 45 and Luke 2 and to dive into what it means for Jesus to be Savior. So, what is Advent all about? Well, aside from being one of my personal favorite seasons in the Christian yearly rhythm, as I said, Advent means arrival, and that's what we celebrate this time of year. The arrival of the long-awaited and long-expected Jesus. It's why Christmas songs that fill our churches and, and our radio stations this time of year are filled with lyrics about uh, the dawn of redeeming grace and the thrill of hope and, and the weary world rejoicing and the heavenly host singing Alleluia. And we sing, sing choirs of angels, sing in exultation. It's the culmination of thousands of years of creation and humanity crying out together, awaiting the coming Messiah that would begin the work of restoring all that was broken by sin. And after all those years, Jesus had finally arrived. And the significance of his incarnation, that is his taking on human flesh while remaining fully God, the, the significance of that cannot be overstated. Aside from his resurrection from the dead, this is probably the single most significant event in human history. God, in his great kindness and love and mercy, stooped low so that we, broken sinners, full of ourselves, rejecting him, could know him and be rescued by him. Well, you might be saying, Chris, that's all great, 
and good and whatever, but this stuff's awfully familiar. Right? I know who Jesus is, and, and I have that first part of John 1 memorized, and I've been hearing these stories since I was a kid, and, and I can tell you all of the stories and the details around Jesus' birth, and, and we even had flannel graphs, and I, you know, I, I've seen it all played out. We've seen the manger scenes, and, and, and that's kind of that. Well, to you, I say, great. I am so glad that you have so steeped yourself in the stories of Jesus' arrival, and that this has taken hold of you so well. And my encouragement for you is this. Remember, as the late pastor Tim Keller often said, the gospel of Jesus is not something that we ever get beyond. It's something that we sink deeper into. And so my encouragement for you this season as we look at these familiar stories is to sink deeper into the truth of the arrival of Jesus and all its implications in your life. Alternatively, if you're here this morning because uh, someone drug you along, uh, your parents said, hey, you have to come to church during Christmas, or, or your spouse said, you, you got to be here. It's okay if you're not here for the rest of the year, but we're going to church around Christmas as a family. Or a friend said, hey, just come check it out. Please just, just come along. And you, for whatever reason, you decided to do that. And you said, I, I guess I'll go. And you're not sure that you really want to be here. Well, my aim over these next few weeks is to show you the beauty and simplicity and life-changing truth about what the advent of Jesus Christ is for you and how it can and will impact your life, both now and in eternity. So, stick with me. Hang in. Keep coming week after week and just hear for yourself how Jesus might change your life. That said, uh, the arrival or the advent of Jesus that we're looking at this morning is the word, uh, as we heard read, found in Isaiah 55 and in John chapter 1. So the plan for the rest of the message this morning is to check out first Isaiah's passage and see what's going on there, and then jump to John chapter 1 and look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of that text and what implications there are for you and I. Cool? So if you would, please open up to Isaiah chapter 55. It's on page 602 in the Worship Center Bible. Uh, if you have a digital version or your own, uh, that's great. I'm preaching from the NIV this morning, but whatever translation you prefer or whatever translation you have with you is just fine. As you open up to Isaiah 55, some background on the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah, we find out in chapter 1, was written to Jerusalem and Judah. Very basically, it's written to God's people while they were exiled or being exiled and, and divided for their disobedience to God. And, and the book is structured, so basically the first two-thirds is uh, about judgment that's happening or is coming and what's kind of presently going on for them uh, and what's going to happen as they continue to be overrun and, and carried off into captivity. And then... The last third is about a, a hope of a future promise and the hope that in spite of their coming suffering, they would be delivered and that God would make good on his covenant promises that he had made with Abraham and David. You may remember those promises. We talked about them a bit in the book of Romans, right? God promised Abraham that he would have a relationship with him, a special blessing relationship, that he would give him land, and then he would give him offspring. And then he kind of doubles down on that promise in David, and he promises him especially uh, an offspring who would establish the throne of God forever. So we're in the last third of the book of Isaiah in this text, and, and, and it's all about future promise for a suffering nation. And chapter 55 in particular is an invitation to turn to God 
who alone can satisfy your hunger and thirst. It culminates in the second half of the chapter with what was read for us. So would you look back with me there, especially at verses 10 and following? I'm going to read them again. Isaiah, on behalf of the Lord, says this, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn brush will grow the juniper. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. The Lord declares here that his word will not return empty, but will accomplish what he desires. And in its context, namely, what he's accomplishing is that his people will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. That all of creation will clap its hands and rejoice and that the prickly things like thorns and briars will be replaced with things of beauty. Isaiah delivered this message to God's people and you can imagine their excitement. Right? These promises are great. But then God's people would go into exile for a long time under some pretty terrible rulers. And so what did God mean? Well, the promises in Isaiah and throughout much of the Old Testament were fulfilled in a twofold way. First, these promises were fulfilled historically as God would eventually lead his people out of exile and they'd be filled with joy as a result. But many would never know the results of that promise in that way. But even for those who did, God's people would struggle. Right? Even as God's family continued to expand and, and include outsiders and as the, those who took Israel captive came to salvation as they saw uh, Israel's witness, God's people would struggle. And so it would seem like God's word and his promises would return empty. That they would not, in fact, accomplish what he said they would. Sometimes it feels like that today, doesn't it? Like God's promises are just empty, like they're not fulfilled, like sin is winning and everything is falling apart and all hope is lost. God's Old Testament people certainly felt like that, and if we're honest, a lot of the times, so do we. Well, our nation and our church family haven't been overtaken by some of the most ruthless enemies we can imagine. But we experience real difficulty and darkness. And all the statistics say that this time of year is particularly difficult for this kind of thing. Our friends and our loved ones move away or pass on. And we don't see them when we would expect to. Our depression crushes us. Our financial struggles in a difficult economy feel overwhelming. We keenly feel our inadequacy as we try and raise our kids well. All, of our, all around us, our culture devolves into madness. And, and things that used to be so obviously wrong and sinful are now celebrated and affirmed. And, and we don't know how to navigate through that. 
let alone remain faithful to Jesus in, in this world, and, and then try to maintain relationships with our friends and neighbors and, and maybe leverage that into something that we can point them back to Jesus and be a light for the world. Our lives can very quickly cause us to feel like all is lost. Like the things that God has promised would be beautiful are actually still very prickly and broken. And there's really not much beauty to be seen. So what do we do with that? With this reality that our circumstances don't reflect what God has promised. And what does that have to do with Isaiah? And how does Advent inform any of it? Well, I said that God's promise in Isaiah was fulfilled in a twofold way. Right, first, to those who would eventually be delivered from physical captivity. But then, in a much fuller way, God's promises were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, would you turn with me to John chapter 1? I'm going to read the first 14 verses of John chapter 1, and then we're going to talk some more about that. John Chapter 1, it's on page 860 in the Worship Center Bible. John writes this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, the word here in John chapter 1 is Jesus Christ. You may know that, but how do we know? Well, well, verse 14 tells us that the word became flesh, right, and dwelled among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Sounds an awful lot like Jesus, right? So Jesus, who according to verse 1, who was with God in the beginning, Right Before all of creation, before anything ever happened, Jesus existed in eternity past with God. And who, according to verse 3, is the one through whom all things were created. Nothing was made apart from Jesus. Right? He declares supremacy over every square inch of creation because he made every square inch of creation. It's all his. Well, that Jesus, that eternally existing Jesus, is the Word. And he's the fuller fulfillment of the promise that God made all the way back in Isaiah that his word would not return empty and that all bad things would be undone. Put another way, Jesus Christ came to earth to accomplish the promises that the Father had put forth. 
The rest of our time together is going to be spent unpacking that idea, and it's going to look like this. First, we're going to talk about who Jesus is and what he does, according to John 1, uh, and hopefully in that process we'll see just how God came through on his word. So, who is Jesus and what does he do? Well, first, Jesus is eternal, he is God, and he brings life. Those first two statements have often been a point of contention, haven't they? You've heard the arguments. Well, Jesus was a good moral teacher. He was maybe a historical figure, and he was a good guy, and he had a lot to say about loving your neighbor and loving your enemy and and showing compassion and love and empathy, and I can learn a lot of morality from him, but he's not really God, and therefore I probably shouldn't follow him with my life and and all that resurrection stuff. I, I don't know. Well, here's the problem with that idea. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible clearly shows us that Jesus is God. For John, it's right at the outset, right there in eternity past. He was with God in eternity past. And it says he he was with God, but he was God. He was active in creation. He does the things that God does. All throughout the New Testament and all throughout the scriptures, we see very clearly that Jesus is God. The Athanasian Creed, one of the ancient creeds that have guided the church in history, uses the language of Jesus and the Spirit and the Father as co-eternal and co-equal. Co-eternal and co-equal. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are co-eternal. They have always existed, three in one, in perfect unity, in perfect relationship with one another. And they are co-equal in power and glory and majesty. Co-eternal and co-equal. And that matters. Why? Well, it matters because it tells us that not only does Jesus have the authority and the power to carry out God's promises as the incarnate word, but it tells us that Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. He knew exactly what he was getting into. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus, as God, co-eternal and co-equal with him, is all-knowing, and all-powerful. He was active in creation, and he knew how everything was going to play out, just as God the Father did and does, right? God's knowledge is completely full. It's not lacking in any way. And if that's true, then from eternity past, Jesus knew exactly how this would all play out. He knew that all things would be made in the garden, and they would be good, Very good, in fact. That man would live in perfect harmony with God and then sin would enter the equation and would shatter the whole thing. And that his creation would be totally powerless to do anything about it. And he knew that he would be the only one who would be able to fix it. He knew everything he would experience long before he would experience it and he still did it. He still created He still took on flesh. He still stooped low that we might know him. And he still brought light into the darkness, even though he knew that bringing that light would ultimately lead him to the cross. The incarnation of Jesus, that advent or arrival on that night some 2,000 years ago, was not a backup plan. We think about the gospel as a backup plan, 
right? We're like, well, God made everything good and then we messed it all up and God was somehow caught off guard in that because there's no way that God made this whole thing knowing exactly how it would play out. But he did. God knew exactly how this thing would play out. The gospel was not plan B. The gospel was plan A. It was always what was going to happen. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce says it like this. He says, in the beginning, in the eternal counsels of God, before there was a world or a lost race of men, that is us, Jesus foresaw all human history and knew that he was to redeem the race. Thus, in the fullness of time, in the days of Herod, he assumed a body so that he could offer up that body as the perfect sacrifice for man's sin. What kind of love must it be that that would be true? Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. He knew what kind of person I would be and what kind of person you would be. The kind of sinful things that we would say and we would do. He knew what it would take to redeem us and he still did it. It borders on incomprehensible, doesn't it? The kind of love that it takes for something like this to happen is mind-boggling. But Jesus came into the darkness. All the while we rejected him and spat on him and sent him to a cross. All while that was going on, he, he fixed it. He fixed the brokenness. He redeemed his people. He brought life where there was only death. Well, second, Jesus brings light into the darkness. Look back with me at verses 5 and 9. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming in to the world. The world is dark. Right? We already know this. We experience that darkness in our own lives in some profoundly sad and difficult ways. We deal with mental health struggles, anxiety and depression and loneliness. We deal with physical ailments, right? Whether from birth or things that happen as we grow or simply from aging. We deal with addictions, with temptation. We deal with that culture that celebrates sin and scoffs at righteousness. And then, and then we hear this voice in our heads that tells us that no matter what we do, we'll never measure up. We'll never be good enough. We'll never be worthy of love or value. And then we come to Thanksgiving and Christmas and this holiday season and somehow in the midst of all of these joyful celebrations, we feel even worse. We see our parents aging and we recognize that the days we have left with them are fewer and fewer. Or maybe we're aging ourselves and we think this may be the last time that I get to gather with my family. We see our kids maturing and growing and, and we feel the time slipping through our fingers. We keenly feel the lack of presence from that loved one that's passed on. We see smiles all around us and so we paste one on so that we can seem happy too when the reality is we're dying inside for some kind of real joy or meaning in life. Church, that light and that meaning and that joy is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. It's only found 
in Jesus and in him alone. Look, you're, you're here at church, and you might be thinking to yourself, what a bunch of garbage. Right? Or, or, of course, this is what, this is what I expected. Right? I showed up here, and, and this preacher gets up there, and it's the church, and so, yeah, of course, I expect to hear that Jesus is the answer, that he can bring light to the darkness, and, and, he, can, and he can feed my soul. That's the obvious Sunday school answer, and, and, and I don't, I don't want to do anything with it. Well, the thing is, just because you showed up here expecting to hear that, or just because it's the Sunday school answer, that doesn't make it wrong. Psalm 34, 8 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. I love that language of taste and see. My task and my aim this morning is is to paint a picture of Jesus as he is in John 1 and Isaiah 55. The one who was in creation, who is God, and by who coming to to the earth and atoning for your sins, accomplished the promise that God made that his word would not return empty. And I hope that my words are persuasive and accurate, and I've been praying that the Spirit would make them effective in your life. That's my task. Yours? Well, it's to respond to the invitation of Psalm 34 to taste for yourself. Because the truth is, none of what I say really matters if you just leave it alone and you don't take a bite or you don't seek refuge in God. If you don't taste it for yourself. See, I could stand up here and I could tell you about how delicious the fresh homemade bread that my wife makes is. It's soft and it's dense but not doughy. And, and when it's fresh, it's got that perfect amount of crunch on the crust. And, and I can smell it when I come home and it's, and it's still warm. And so the butter melts and soaks right in. And that first bite is just this eruption of joy on my taste buds. It's this melted butter mixed with this great loaf of bread. Your mouth might be watering. Well, I could, I could take it further. And I, I could have brought some bread and I could have held it up for you. To see, And I could have taken a bite in front of you and told you about how delicious that bread was. I could even uh, give you a piece of that bread. I could break a piece off and say, here, eat this, take this. It's going it's to be some of the best bread that you've ever had. But do you know what? If you don't ever take a bite, you will never know how delicious that bread is. If you don't respond to the offer from God to bring light into your darkness, then all of this stuff can and will remain like this idea in your head that's out there or some fairy tale in your eyes. Because we as a church have and and will continue to have people come up here and share their testimony. And you can and should talk to people whose lives have been changed by the gospel, by knowing Jesus, whose addictions have been replaced by Jesus, whose marriages have been restored by Jesus, whose generational curses have been broken by the power of the gospel. We can and should celebrate those things and hear those stories, but if you, sitting here, don't respond, then it's all for nothing in your life. Jesus is real. He brings light to the darkness, when my life feels out of control and when I feel overwhelmed by the things that I experience, Jesus is there and he's with me in that. 
And the truth that we all know is it's often not in some tangible way, right? Things can be terrible, and and we don't just have this warm, fuzzy feeling like, yeah, but I have Jesus and everything's going to be all right. But we also know that Jesus walks with us through difficulty, and he's there by his Spirit working to minister to us and to encourage us and to change us and to bring light into the darkness, And he's done that in my life, and he can and will and wants to do it in yours. Look with me at verses 10 to 13. It says this, He, that is Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. That's the offer before you this morning. If you receive him, if you believe in his name, he will make you a child of God. A co-heir with Jesus Christ, he will graft you into his family. And when he ushers in his kingdom at his second coming, you will be counted among those who will reign with him forever. That's the promise that we have, that if we confess Jesus as Lord and follow after him, we will be adopted into God's family. Christian and non-Christian alike here this morning, every gift you've ever pursued or received has left you unsatisfied. Or if you've just received it, it's going to leave you unsatisfied. That's just the truth of how this goes. Most of the gifts, if you're honest, that you've ever received, you've forgotten about. But the gift of being adopted by God is the one thing that will never leave you feeling empty. The more Jesus gives of himself, the more you know him, the more you walk with him, the more you experience life as he intended, the more of him you want. And he keeps filling you and filling you and filling you. Jesus will never leave you wanting more. He brings light into the darkness. So let him, let him turn from yourself and your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ and follow him with your life. Jesus brings life. He brings light. And finally, the advent of Jesus Christ shows us God's glory. Look with me back at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, we see God's glory in all sorts of ways, don't we? It's it's revealed in creation. The heavens declare his glory. We live to to the glory of God. If you've been to the Grand Canyon or seen the Northern Lights recently or walked in the calm of the woods after a fresh snowfall or seen a night sky far from the city lights or observed the ocean and its power, any number of places, you can find yourself overwhelmed with God's glory, right? Feeling like you're sitting in his presence, worshiping him. And that's good. That's good. God reveals his glory in all of those ways. And... The clearest place that we see on this side of heaven, the glory of God, is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The clearest place 
this side of heaven that we see the glory of God is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That one who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is the incarnate word of God from Isaiah and throughout the scriptures. And as he moved and acted, so God moved and acted. When we look at Jesus, we see God in all his glory. And Jesus is more glorious than the most beautiful sunrise we've ever seen, the fullest clear moon, or the most stunning night sky we can imagine. But he did not come to the earth simply to demand authority or to flex his power or to sit on some earthly throne. He came, as it says here, full of grace and truth displaying God's glory. And the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most glory-filled thing in all of history. And by it, God poured out his love. It was his love lived out, God's love in action. And he displayed his glory. And in his conquering of death, Jesus was once and for all crowned Lord over everything. And he did it all for you, that you might be reconciled to the Father that your relationship with him might be restored. I opened this morning with this question. Who is Jesus and what does he do? Well, Jesus is the incarnate word of God. He is the one, he is, he is God who took on humanity. He's the one in whom God makes good on all of his promises to you and to me. He brings life and he brings light, and he shows us God's glory. And Jesus is the one who can change everything in your life. I don't know what everyone in this room is going through right now, but I know that many of you are experiencing real difficulty. Know that as one of your pastors, my heart is full of empathy and compassion and love for you. Many of you are walking out situations that I can't pretend to understand in a first-hand way. We as pastors of Crossview bring you and your situations before the throne of God regularly in prayer. You are deeply loved. And know that if that's you this morning, if you're here and you're hurting or you're in a broken situation or things are really difficult, know that God is near to you in the person of Jesus. He's shining light into your darkness. And so cling to him. Cling to him. And if you're visiting Crossview or someone drug you along or you're here and you're hurting and you feel like you have nowhere to turn and your life is only darkness all the time and, and whether it's people or circumstances or your own self telling you that there's no hope and there's no light and there's only despair and there's only darkness, hear this. Jesus shines light into darkness. Jesus shines light into darkness. Turn from your sin. Trust in him and follow with your life. Let the light of Christ shine into the darkness of your situation. Don't run from Jesus. Stop hiding that part of your life from him and that darkness. Don't, don't hide it. Stop trying to handle it all on your own because the truth is you don't have to. You don't have to handle the difficulty of life on your own. Jesus wants to enter into that space with you. He knew full well what was going to happen, and he did it anyway. He did it anyway. He entered into this broken world, and he wants to enter into your broken life because of his great love for you. He 
He took on flesh and he carries out the promises of God. As we close, I want you to hear the words from Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 13 again. And this time, I want you to remember that God has made good on every promise in these verses in the person of Jesus Christ. So hear these words. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so my word that goes out, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You, in Christ Jesus, will go out in joy and because of Jesus be led forth in peace and because of him the mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands at the sound of his name. Instead of the thorn brush, he will make grow the juniper and instead of briars, he will cause the myrtle to grow. This, the gospel, will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We don't deserve your goodness, and yet you have poured it out in abundance. We praise you for your plan from eternity past to create a world that was good, but that you knew would fall apart as a result of sin. But your plan was never to leave us in that. It was always to send Jesus, to take on flesh, to be born of a virgin and to live a life that we could not, to die the death that we deserve, that we might be redeemed as your people, adopted as sons and daughters. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make these truths effective in us, that you would cause the gospel to sink deeply into us, whether for the first time or for the hundredth. Lord, we confess that we often overlook these truths and we move past them and we don't worship you as you deserve. And so God, would you make the gospel evident in our lives in fresh ways during this season? We love you and we thank you for your word in our time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.